0: Let's pretend that this isn't advice and I'm Erin and I'm not giving you advice it's it's not advice I can't help myself give advice I don't mean to I don't want to I want you to be able to live your life but I know how to do it I am a huge know-it-all and this is where I practice not giving advice to people except I totally give advice to them I'm a lawyer turned professional certified coach, and I just happen to give the best advice. But this is a podcast, not a coaching session, so I obviously don't do that here, except I do. This is not advice with Erin Conlon, your know-it-all lawyer coach friend. This is not advice. Today's conversation is with Chelsea Thames. The founder of Lettering Works, a brand design company. We talk about creativity, time boundaries, and living into your vision. I hope that you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. Hey, Chelsea.
1: Hey, Aaron. So, Chelsea Tams, who are you? I am a lettering artist and brand designer in Chicago.
0: What is that? <laughs>
1: Yeah, So I help businesses and other artists build their brands, build their businesses and figure out how to turn their passions into their full time careers. And I help primarily through creating very customized visuals for them.
0: That's, um, that's really cool. Who are you outside of your work?
1: Yeah, I love that question because there's a huge overlap between my work and my business life. And I've really designed that very intentionally to make it feel like I don't have to go to work every day, but I just really enjoy what I do. So outside of work, I like to spend a lot of time with my family, my friends traveling, of course, in non-pandemic times, traveling internationally um, and making a lot of art inside and outside of work. Oh, so... I have like six questions based upon
0: what you just said. One, what's the favorite place that you've ever visited?
1: My favorite go-to place would be Granada, Spain. I studied abroad there when I was in college. So it's my number one place I want to go back to. Of course, I had a trip during the pandemic that was canceled. So that definitely makes me even more excited to get back when it's safe to do so. So that is my number one. It's in the southern part of Spain. And I would highly recommend going there for anyone who gets the opportunity. What do you like about it? One of my favorite things, and I think the best selling point about it, is that you get free tapas with every drink that you purchase. And that's a whole citywide thing. So it's a pretty cool... cultural thing that they have specifically in Granada. So it's uniquely known for that. But it also is just such a beautiful place. It's tucked away in the mountains, but it also gives you a small city feel. Um, so it's just, it's such a picturesque place to go. And there's so many unique parts of of the city in, in the forms of different neighborhoods.
0: Are you fluent in Spanish?
1: I would like to say that I'm fluent in Spanish. I do have a degree in Spanish, um, but I don't (laughs) practice speaking Spanish enough to feel like I'm fluent anymore. I can definitely read and write better than I can speak Spanish. And that's just because there's not quite as many opportunities, at least in my field or in where I live currently, um, to practice Spanish regularly. But I definitely enjoy the language. And I always like to say that I studied it too more because I enjoyed studying communication than actually practically using the language. So I'm really fascinated by just understanding the similarities and differences between English and Spanish and communicating in general versus being able to use it all the time. Now I have even more questions.
0: So, like, what do you mean when you say that you're interested in communication?
1: So being a visual artist and a graphic designer... Ninety-nine percent of that is coming up with effective ways to communicate to people. So it's been really interesting to be able to study Spanish and figure out, okay, how is this going to be different if I create something in a certain color or with a certain emphasis on words? How would that be perceived differently between somebody who speaks English as their first language or Spanish as their first language? So it's just another layer that kind of comes into my visual work of understanding more broadly how could somebody misinterpret this design? How could somebody use this effectively even if they don't know the language? And I think that's where visuals really come in to make things a little bit more interesting when communicating. Because sometimes, I mean, if you've ever been in an airport where the language isn't English, although we're very lucky that English is used across the entire world, um, but being able to still navigate your way around when that's not the primary focus can be like a really good Good experience for people, even if they feel kind of out of place. So that plays a role into the designs that I create and how I think about communication in general.
0: So, what's your favorite like design lettering fail?
1: who in terms okay so I think the go-to standard one is a misuse of comic sans and I think this is actually an interesting one to bring up because I don't hate comic sans and I think most really strong well-intentioned designers don't hate comic sans either what we hate about it in terms of design fails is it's used at inappropriate times so comic sans has the rounded corners very easy to read so the benefit of it is that children can very easily read and identify the letters because of the way that it's created. But a lot of times when you use it for a business or you use it in any more serious situation, it really takes down that seriousness. Um, So that's definitely one that comes to mind in terms of just a general design fail. And I think a lot of times it gets looked over why it's a design fail. It's not just it's Comic Sans, you can't use it anywhere. But I would say the only person who could use it is a second grade teacher or the like in her classroom. Once she steps outside of her classroom and starts using it for her business on the side, that's when it gets a little fuzzy and turns into one of those classic design fails that all of us designers cringe at.
0: I mean, I was a lawyer for many years and Comic Sans was like, do not ever touch it. (laughs) And I kind of get why now from a design point, like if that's the case, then what people will hear or read is like a child telling them, like, here comes so forth for this whatever.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's exactly that of like, you won't be taken seriously as a lawyer if you use it because it has just this deep connotation and meaning and context where it should be used for children. So if you're trying to deliver some important information to somebody and you're using that it contradicts. And that's where the visual piece comes in to say that this isn't the same message, even though your message may be really well written. If you're communicating it visually in a way that doesn't line up, then people aren't going to take you seriously or respect the authority that you have. Do you hear my cat? He agreed.
0: (laughs) Um, So How did you start this work? How'd you get into it? Like, what had you go from Spanish to designing letters and brands?
1: Yeah, so I actually kind of fell in love with both of them in high school. And that's when I started to learn really, that was my first opportunity to take a Spanish class. And then it was also my first opportunity to take a graphic design class. So I always knew that I liked art. I did art like mommy and me classes when I was really young, and then always took art classes on the side of whatever curriculum there was at my school. So I always knew I wanted to do art, but I didn't know exactly what that meant as a career. So once I found graphic design, that kind of made the two click. Because I think a lot of artists experience their parents wanting the best for them and wanting them to go into something that has a more traditional career path. And I think graphic design is kind of the one in the art world that's like the most safe but at the same time, I kind of fell in love with it because I love the strategy and the communication side of things. So I didn't actually know that I would major in Spanish, but I enjoyed taking the classes in high school, went to college, and really wanted to study abroad. And the way it kind of worked out was you have so many credits that you get from studying abroad and dedicating an entire semester to Spanish that just taking a class, one class each semester, really landed me that extra degree in Spanish. So that's Kind of how it came into play. Graphic design has always been my core focus, my core interest. I knew that's what I wanted to do. But the more I reflect back on kind of where I started back in high school and the things that I got interested in, I really have seen business kind of surface as another thing that that I didn't really realize was always there. I recently thought back to my senior year art class where we had a portfolio. Um, well. A portfolio for an AP program that I did, so AP2D art, but then also our senior portfolio show. And I realized looking back on it that I was very entrepreneurial in how I presented the work. I actually came up with a fictitious brand and um, made actual soaps that were in the shape of cupcakes and popsicles for my project and I sold those. So a lot of people weren't necessarily selling things that were lower price points. So it was kind of funny to look back and think like there. are there was the start of my business back when I was a senior in high school, even though I didn't formally start my business lettering works until I was a senior in college. So for your business, like who
0: do you work for? Like who are your clients? Who do you want to work for?
1: Yeah, I love that question because I think it's changed a lot over the years, but also stayed the same. So I love working primarily with artists. And that's just because I feel like I've always been fascinated by that intersection of wanting to create art, but then also communicating in a very professional way. So I love helping other artists be that kind of in-between piece of can I connect you from your art that you're really great at to the business that you want to have to sustain yourself. So that's probably my favorite segment to work with in terms of I can relate to artists, I understand the challenges, the struggles, and I can also kind of help navigate to getting that professional business look and feel to help them make the money they deserve and make this a career for themselves. So that's probably my top favorite. But I also work with other business owners, whether that be restaurant owners, other local businesses, service providers, anyone who is very passionate about what they do. I think that's the most important thing to me, regardless of what I'm doing, is finding those opportunities of people who are like, this is what I'm meant to do. I'm super excited about this. I love this. How do I translate what I'm doing to visuals? And how do I have visuals that can help get me further in business and figure out how do I take that and, and make a life around it. So Chelsea, how would you, like, I'm super passionate about my work and I
0: really love what I'm doing. And how would you translate that for somebody like me?
1: Yeah. So my favorite thing to do when working with clients is really pull all of that passion and excitement out of you and understand, okay, what is it specifically that you're really passionate about? What is it that you really like makes you wake up each day and excited to do your work. And then taking all that essence of what you really care about and saying, how can we turn it into visuals that make you even more excited about what you do, that make you more excited to show up and present on on the topics that you're passionate about. So whether that be coaching and you want to have additional pieces to give to your clients in terms of a sticker that can go on their water bottle that kind of reinforces everything that you stand for, everything that you do, everything that you mean for them as well. So it's a lot of pulling out what's already there and then saying, okay, so you know how to articulate it verbally. Do you know how to articulate it visually? And a lot of people don't because they're not designers. So that's where I come in to say, okay, I understand exactly what you're doing after we go through a process, whether that's jumping on a call and talking through it, filling out a questionnaire. There's all different ways to pull that information out, even scouring your website and Instagram and kind of seeing, okay, what are the themes here? And then taking that and confirming that with you saying, does this sound good, Aaron? If it does, here's how I think... Think it can turn into a visual that can help you feel even more confident about what you're putting out into the world. So that's kind of the general process. Um, and then sometimes there's more strategy with it. Sometimes it's a little bit more straightforward. Sometimes people know the visual that they need to represent them. Other times people kind of stop where 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 some people are in terms of, okay, I know this much, I can explain it, but I can't show you a visual, I can't make a logo. So that's where a designer can come in and kind of serve as that connector or that translator, really. And that's where I think it kind of goes back to Spanish, because it's all about translating and communicating from one person understanding things one way to another. And that's really what we do with our clients is how do I communicate my expertise to a person who may, might not understand it fully. I need to make it relatable to the clients and the customers, not just so it makes sense to me. That's a lot to process.
0: <laughs> like just, I, there's a lot of emotional labor in what you're talking about, right? Translating from me to you, understanding how many people would hear it or see it or understand it. Like, making it attractive so that people, humans, like at one of the things that I am always frustrated with is the concept of business, not being by people for people. Like in my mind, business is useless without human beings, right? Like you need people in order to serve and you need to be a person to serve other people. And we hold business as this like separate thing. Oh, that's a business thing. You are a person who has a business, but like you are separate from your business. I don't know. It's this very detached way of being. And what I'm hearing from what you're saying is like, oh man, I have to make this so that everyone wants in, or at least the people who I want to want in, want in. And I have to hear what, let's say we have a mutual friend, our mutual friend, Andy is saying. So that, like, I can translate for her to the world.
1: Mm -hmm. Is that accurate? Yeah, Yeah, it's exactly that. And it's resonating with the right people, right? So... It's not that your message has to connect with every person out there. It has to connect with the right people. And that's where I think graphic design sounds so simple because there's Canva. You can create any graphic you want, but the real work and the real design that's well-respected in the design community and actually converts to more dollars for your business and you being fulfilled as a business owner is when you can connect to the right people. And there's a lot of strategy that goes into that, that I think a lot of people overlook, even some designers overlook. And I don't, fault designers for it. I really fault people's small budgets because it takes work. As we just talked through, that's a lot. It's a lot to unpack. It's a lot to think about. It's a lot to actually execute. So if people don't understand that's really what's going into design, then they skip over it. They're just like, I want a pretty image to put out into the world. And you can do that and it might work and it There's a good chance it will work, but will it work as great as you need it to, to get you where you actually want to go with the people? So that's really how I see design and how I think a lot of people see design, but it sometimes gets simplified because Canva, which I think Canva is great. It's great that people have access to it, but we miss this conversation a lot of times because it's just so easy to create something. And I think... Actually comparing a lawyer and a designer is a great comparison because not everyone can can be your lawyer and practice this. There's so many standards there and things you have, hoops you have to jump through to be qualified to do that. But with a designer, you can create something in Canva and, and there's no one saying you can't, which is great, but then also a problem because we kind of skip over the qualified, high-quality level of people that can actually come in and, and do some real good.
0: Yeah. I, um, I use Canva all the time and I hate it (laughs) so much because I'm not a visual artist. Like I am an, I have creative streaks, but like, I don't know what I'm doing. And half the time I feel like, Oh man, I really do want the budget for this. And I will probably eventually hire you or somebody to do this for me, but like, I'm just not there yet. And I think like, you know, the next question I'm going to ask you is like, what's your dream? Like, where do you want to go with your business? And I think that what we're talking about here is kind of the gap between where you start and where you want to go. And both of us are working in filling in that gap. Like I work with people for how they are about it. And you work for people for how they present themselves to the world around it.
1: Yeah, I think that's an amazing question because a lot of people forget to think about that question. So we're just doing things. It's totally okay to use Canva to do all these things as a means to getting to that end where you can hire a designer, you can do whatever it is that you want to do. But I think a lot of people settle for different things. So what I've done in my business and what I'm going for in terms of a goal is I would love to exclusively work with artists one day instead of working with all these different organizations. And it's not that I don't enjoy working with the clients that I have. I always am very intentional about who I work with or try to make a spin on it so I can really personally get something out of it, which means I can put better work into the project. So I don't think it's selfish to do that. I think it's really important that you are passionate about who you're working with, or you're not going to deliver the high quality results that you should be and you know you can. Um, So I've really focused on, okay, what does that look like in five years, in 10 years, in 20 years? So I launched an online course earlier this year, specifically for artists. And the goal there is actually creating more of the future clients that I want to Have. So a lot of artists come to me and they are seemingly ready for a new brand or a logo, but they're not really there yet in terms of the business. They don't really have all of the things in place where it makes sense. So my initial advice is don't invest in a logo. You're not ready yet. You need to figure out your style, you need to figure out what exactly you're selling and who you're selling to. Or if I create this logo for you, it might not resonate with the right people. And it's really hard as an artist. I even struggle with this and figuring out who is the target market, who are the people I'm trying to reach with this and impact. Because on one hand, we're creating this artwork for ourselves. We're creating this artwork to add something to the world that we want to see. But at the same time, there has to be, especially in design, a target market and a group of people that you're trying to get this to resonate with. So I see that as a huge challenge, but also a huge opportunity to kind of figure that out and say, how do I fit into this? So for Me creating that online course was saying, here's the missing piece, here's the bridge to get you to where you think you are or where you want to be so that we can work together in this capacity. But these things need to happen first. So that was the whole inspiration for creating this. And that's why I think my long term goal is to have all of these resources built out for artists so that if you're not in the position to hire me for branding or to work with me on that larger custom capacity, I have these stepping stones to get you as an artist there so that we can work together instead of just turning people away? Because that's something, obviously, you can't do it all. You can't serve every type of artist, every type of person. But how do you create a couple different things that, oh, you're in this category, I have something for you. Oh, you're a little bit more advanced in business. Here's how we can work together. So that's kind of the big picture that I've been trying to build. And I recently connected with a advisor at the WBDC, the Women's Business Development Center here in Chicago. And she really asked some of those questions and got me thinking like, what if I became an art consultancy later on and did all of these different things like that sounds like a pretty cool vision but at the same time i'm working on all these different things and and that answer changes because i see different opportunities so a completely different area of business that i'm developing is trying to work with more museums and airports to sell my actual art products so that's a totally different totally different thing right there but i think that at the same time it all connects in my mind because i want to get that experience so i can share it back with artists and inspire them to do similar things or inspire them to do completely different things so for me it all kind of makes sense even though it sounds it is two completely different target markets it's two completely different lines of business but at the same time i kind of see it all coming together one day where it all exists in a way that i can support even more people through my experiences and through being able to inspire them to to do it their own way as well, because thats I'm a huge proponent of you have to figure out a way that works for you. And that comes from my background with having some chronic illnesses and really wanting to create a life that makes sense for me and say no to some of the things that we're told. Here's how to be an artist. Here's what you have to do. And some of those things don't really work for me physically. So making sure that I'm creating space and helping other artists figure out what actually works for you.
0: Yeah, so one, all of a sudden, your sound sounds way better to me. (laughs) So that's interesting. Uh, And two, tell me more about this. Like, I was going to ask you this anyway, um, which is like, how does your work and, and your life work for you? So tell me more about like, you designing your life or your work in a way that works for your life.
1: Yeah, so that is probably the biggest thing that I have tried to cultivate in my life figuring out how do I make this business so enjoyable that it doesn't feel like work, but it also makes space for whatever I want to do in life. So I'm notoriously a very hard worker and probably work more than the average person. I think every small business does in some capacity. I don't, I think where I've changed over the last couple of years is realizing that. Long hours are not virtuous. They're not helpful. They're not going to get us to where we ultimately want to be. And I think recognizing the stage you are in life. So when you're getting started, when you're younger, um, I started my business right out of college. I had a lot of energy to put into it. And I feel like I'm kind of hitting the second season in business where... That's, I still have some of that energy, but that's not necessarily something to be proud of anymore if you work all day and all night. So I've really started figuring out, okay, what's important? How do I cut down some of these things that I've been doing so that I'm just doing the most valuable tasks and that I'm starting to outsource things so I can do what I want to do? For me, what that looks like very simply is not waking up super, super early. I am not a morning person. And a lot of the books and the self-help and the professional development say, you have to wake up at four or five to like get your day going and all these things. And that's just not true. We don't have to do that. We can do whatever works for us. So, for me, what that looks like is waking up maybe at 9 a.m. instead of 5 a.m. And sometimes that means putting an extra hour of work in randomly at night, or two hours, or four hours. And for me, really creating this work life balance is saying, when I really want to do something, I'm going to do it. That's personal, that's business, that's whatever it needs to look like, and creating that space and flexibility. And it doesn't make sense to most other people because they might see me work. Working at 9 p.m. at night and saying, You never stop working. It's true to an extent, but it's also not true at all because I slept until 10 that day and I took a long two hour walk with my partner and we got lunch and ate in the park. So I think that's where the lines kind of get blurred and also why I don't really like when people share like this virtuous, proud moment of, I worked a 16-hour day, because that's not what we all want. That's not what we all need for sustainability. So for me, it's really figuring out how do I create that balance? How do I design it around my life? And then also, how do I work with clients that don't make me freak out when I'm going to sleep or stress me out, but they actually respect the time that I have, the energy, all these different things. So what that ultimately looks like is me feeling comfortable every day to say, I can do this my own way, whether that's working at midnight on a project for them or working in the afternoon. It doesn't matter to them because they trust the process and they trust the results. Um, so yeah. I've really cultivated that. And that's what I feel like I'm most proud of in terms of this is working for me. And I think it's going to continue working because I'm intentional about it.
0: Um, I mean, I come from a lot of hustle, cult- hustle culture background, and lawyers have it, comedians have it, people who like, I have it as a small business owner and as a solo, solo practitioner, like there's this feeling that you have to do more in order to have it be enough. Like if I'm not hustling, if I'm not killing myself, if I'm not, then I, I'm not doing enough. And I think that mindset kind of takes away from the humanity of who we are, right? Like you mentioned a chronic illness and I'm guessing, I don't know, but I'm guessing that a lot of this self-care and the choices that you're making are precisely because you want to maintain your body in a way that allows you to maintain your life.
1: Is that true? Absolutely.
0: So like, I don't know what the question I have for you is, but how much would you, I guess the thing I really am curious about is like, how much would you say
1: you work to live or live to work? I really find that question kind of hard to answer because I almost see them as the same thing. I've created the work that I do so intentionally that it feel it gives me life and energy. So it's, it's kind of, which I think is like the perfect dream goal. I also find it funny sometimes when people don't see it that way. Like wouldn't, isn't our ultimate goal to like love our work so much that it just feels like part of our life and and it's just great. Like that's definitely the goal for me. And that's what I try to cultivate. And every time I go through an experience or a project that I'm like, this was not it. I try to, identify the red flags or the things that happened that make it not so great. So I don't do that again. So I feel like I definitely can't answer that question in terms of like, I see it all as one in my life. And that's what I try to teach other people as well. If they're interested in that path of like, you want it to flow naturally, you can make that happen by choosing really intentionally what work you do so that you really do enjoy it. And it's hard to do. I mean, there's lots of opportunities that come up that aren't right for you. And it's hard to say no. And I've said yes to way too many things that aren't the right thing. But as soon as you're um, honest about it and really think like, okay, what do I actually like? What do I actually love? And if you reflect on that over and over again, I think you get closer to just creating this life that you want. So one of the things that I don't do that a lot of people do is track hours on projects. I've moved to really just project-based rates and not keeping track of hours, because I think that ultimately in the majority, there have been a couple projects I've needed to do that for. But in the majority of projects, it's just about, do you feel good in the moment? That's something that's come up more recently in books that i've read and things that i've been thinking about is we need to celebrate the small wins along the process we need to enjoy the process and not just the outcome so if if you make the goal the outcome as soon as you accomplish that the target moves again so how do we actually enjoy like the little things and also the process like am i do I have effective habits? Am I working on building this life that I enjoy versus it doesn't matter if I get this job or if I get this project, but did I do all the right steps to set me up so that makes sense as a, as an outcome or result? So that's really where I feel like I'm at now where that's not where I was when I started in business. I do think that a certain element of hustle is important. Like when you're passionate, when you are excited about something like Go for it. Drive. Spend the extra couple hours to make your vision, your dreams happen. But don't fall into that happens every single hour, every single day, because that's when it gets really stressful. And that's the unsustainable life that we build with this hustle culture. So making sure that we're not falling into that. But if you got a new idea and you're excited, stay up all night and work on it. And then if you build your life correctly or in a way that works for you, maybe you can sleep in half the next day and then get back on it. But where I think the hustle culture is dangerous is we stay up all night and then we still have this expectation of getting up at eight to start our next work day. So for me, it's a lot more fluid. And if I feel really excited, let's go with that. If I don't, take a break, take a walk, get outside. Don't force yourself to work when you can't do it. We all know that like in our gut, like this isn't yeah. the time or this so, isn't working. So I I have like six questions.
0: One, the first question I have are like, what are the red flags when you, like now that you kind of have an idea, what tells you, oh no, 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 no.
1: Yeah. So the biggest red flag for me personally is just a difference in way of working. So what I mean by that is I use an online um, CRM that really helps me communicate, okay, this is the contract, sign it all online, do all these things. Um, and then also, here's a design proof. You can enter in your responses in these questionnaire-esque forms to really facilitate that feedback. I've had huge red flags when somebody says, we need to be on the phone every day at 7 p.m. or noon or whatever time to review this. They want to like kind of look over my shoulder or want that like more reporting. And I won't say that that's wrong. That just does not work for me. I don't want to be accountable in that format because it disrupts my flow of work. I feel like to me personally, it's disrespectful for how I work. Of Sometimes I work at night. Sometimes I work in the morning and that shouldn't matter. And I think our culture has really been wrapped up in, okay, if I'm hiring you, I own you for this time and you have to deliver oh, and my God, I know. like just the control. And I'm sure it's very similar Like in your past life with being a lawyer. It's just like, I want to make sure that I'm getting what I'm paying for. And Mm -hmm. that's a red flag. When you get any sort of communication that it's like they want to control the outcome to a degree where they don't trust you can create the outcome you say you can create. And that's really the biggest red flag. And that manifests in so many different ways. But as soon as they're kind of questioning my process, like I had the biggest nightmare of a client I've had since moving to Chicago in 2019 won't say any names or anything. But the red flags were just that, the phone calls, the we need to check in with you every day. Actually, we told you our deadline was in two weeks. We need it tomorrow. You need to work this weekend. That's not how that works. And it's really hard to to stand up for yourself and, and go back and forth. But they just, after the project, just said, this process is absolutely terrible. You are not a professional. All of these things where of the time, I get the complete opposite reaction. This was the easiest process working with a designer. I love how you set things up. I didn't know working with a designer could be so fun, so easy. Um, Like this has exceeded my expectations in so many ways. And I think that just goes to show that there's red flags individual to each person. Mm -hmm. And it's because they could have a great experience somewhere else. And someone else who's worked with me could have a terrible experience somewhere else too. So it's about finding the right people, the people who respect the same things that you value. And that's going to vary by person. Some people are totally fine being on the phone, checking in every single day. And maybe that helps them keep accountable to actually getting the work done. That's just not how I work. So my red flags kind of revolve around, you don't actually trust me. And if you don't trust me, I'm not going to create strong work for you because I'm going to be self-conscious about it, or I'm going to not deliver the way that I want to deliver it. And that means it's not going to be my best work. There's times that somebody, a client might say, I want to use Comic Sans and they make it so uncomfortable for me to say, here's why you shouldn't do that. So then they get the Comic Sans. I can't say that I've actually done I want to
0: use Comic Sans. I want to have everyone know that as an executive coach, I am also a second grader. (laughs)
1: And that, and I would be comfortable enough telling you, Aaron, please do not do this. This is what it's communicating. But there's certain people that will be so aggressive towards a designer that you just have to say, okay, here's the file and move on. And I think that's really sad because you want to create this relationship with any professional, with a lawyer, with a designer, with a copywriter, with anyone, a coach that they can actually talk to you honestly and be an advisor to you. So I think that's where the red flags come in. When you can't be an advisor and a respected professional, it's not going to be a good working relationship. They need to respect you for what you uniquely do. And there's tons of those red flags happening. Even like, can you do this for half the price? There's no respect in asking for that right off the bat, but a lot of designers get that. They're like, oh, this is way too expensive. Can you do it for less? And it's like, trust me, this is what I think you need to pay and what we need to do to make it good. How do you, like, so there's there's the linear conversation of
0: like how you price things, but then there's the bigger conversation of owning your value. So I'm just a little curious, like, how do you... Own your value in your pricing.
1: Yeah. So I teach this in my course, Self Made Artist Academy, about you need to figure out what you need to make for you. And then you have to figure out what is a value that I can provide to other people. So for me, it's all about figuring out, okay, I need to charge $500 for a project. This is just easy math. I, Don't get to say, I'm going to do just this really simple thing. I have to figure out what is $500 worth of value to my potential client. So there's that piece of figuring out, okay, how do I create $500 worth of value? I need to charge this amount to cover my bills. I need to make $8,000 a month. Okay, how do I create that much value in the time that I have? So that's like such a big thing to think about. And for me, what that looks like on a practical level is, okay, I can't work on personal projects. A lot of lettering artists are able to work on smaller personal projects, custom pieces for maybe one single print in a nursery or something like that. I've done that when I got started. But at this point, there's just not enough value there to justify it and, and own my worth and figure out I have the time to do this. So for me, what that's looked like is, okay, how do I level up in terms of clients? I can only work on branding projects with artists if they're generating enough revenue to afford my rates. And there's other options and values out there. So if somebody only wants to pay $50 for a logo, there's cheap options out there. But that's I'm never going to be able to provide that. So I think it's really understanding what you need to charge and understanding how do I create a value and find the people that value it at the same amount? Because A logo is a great example. You can get one for $5. You can get one for $500,000. There's such a spectrum. So it's not necessarily about how much is your logo worth. It's figuring out how much do I need to make to sustain myself? And then how do I find the person whose value aligns with that? Making sure that if they want to pay $5,000 for a logo and I need to make $5,000 on a single project, that I find that person who actually values it. And not that I'm just charging $5,000 to anyone who comes to me, but I'm turning Away those people that this doesn't make sense for you. And that happens a lot with artists because I don't want to make them lose all of their money and invest in branding when that's not what they're ready for. It doesn't have that value to them yet. So it's about figuring out how do you find that right person who values you where you're at? Because in business, mm-hmm. especially as a designer, you might start out charging $200 for a logo. And then 10 years in, you're charging $20,000. Your clients Let's, change. Yeah.
0: So... Like, what's your dream owning your value place? In terms of like a client? Yeah, like 10 years from now, if you had to, let's say a logo, like, I don't know what you charge for a logo now. Let's say it's 500 bucks for a single logo. Where would you want to be in 10 years?
1: Yeah, I think it's hard to answer very specifically, but I've kind of leaned in more to what are the brands that I love throughout? my day-to-day life? And how could I become that person? I think we all have limiting beliefs in terms of oh, someone designed that, but it'd never be me. So I'm starting to like break through some of those things and figure out, okay, what does it look like if instead of thinking, maybe I'll try to get on this person's shelf in their store with some art products, what if I design the branding for them and I created a custom collection as a collaboration with them? So it's hard for me to pick a specific, but Mm -hmm. two things is I would love to work with more airports. Um, I started selling products at the Peoria Airport when I got started in business and I'm actually in a course Right now, learning about how to do business with O'Hare and Midway Airport specifically, and it's a total different beast. But I think that that's a dream vision of partnering with somebody like Hudson, um, who has. 33 stores in O'Hare alone to figure out, okay, what does a custom collection for them look like? One of my favorite clients and projects has been working with the Field Museum and creating two custom designs for enamel pins. And they selected two of my Chicago designs as well. So that's kind of put me on the path of like, how much bigger can I get? But at the same time, it's not just about the size of the business. For me, it's about the impact of the work. And I've always been really attracted to how do a lot of people see this and how do a lot of people become impacted by it? So one of my old favorite projects would always be designing billboards because they have such great visibility and can really strongly communicate those messages. But one of my favorite projects I've done has really been working on those custom designs for the Field Museum because that promotes the Field Museum, which is a great organization. They have so many great resources inside their museum. So it's fostering that community and excitement. Um, So that's, that's definitely been a big one. So for me, it's always just kind of Leveling up to what's the next version of that? What's my favorite thing I've done? How do I keep iterating on that to get closer and closer to whatever it is that's the end goal? But I wouldn't even say that I have an end goal, particularly. It's just Mm -hmm. I create, at one point, the field museum was an end goal. So I accomplished that. And now I'm like, okay, maybe I could go bigger than that because I've done this stepping stone. So I think that's as you get started in business, you set kind of small goals because you don't realize what's possible. So I'm kind of, going into figuring out how do I set these larger goals? How do I figure out how to really level up? And what does that look like? And I've also learned on the flip side, some of the things that I don't want to do. I won't say I don't want to get products into Target, but I learned about that. And it was more than I was interested in. It was different than what I thought it would be. So that's kind of shaped my perception of okay, maybe I want to just keep going with what's already working for me and figure out where that takes me rather than setting this goal that doesn't actually mean a ton for me now because I'm not kind of naturally progressing towards it. And another really great example of that is I really wanted to work at Leo Burnett when I graduated from college, big agency downtown in Chicago. And I realized not having gotten that position or or worked with them, that that wasn't really the goal. The goal was to work on work I really enjoyed. And I just had this perception that all of their work must be super fun and glamorous. But I have friends who've worked there and we kind of go back and forth on there's some things they're jealous that I get to do and there's some things that I'm jealous that they get to do. So it's not necessarily about that. It's about finding what is exciting for you. And I think that changes a lot over time as well.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, I work, a lot of my clients are lawyers and big, like they're they're high performing people, right? And there's this idea of like, what is success structurally? And for lawyers, it's working for big law firms and having big clients and making big money. And then there's what is success like in your life? And that is how does your experience of your work and your experience of your day and do you get to see your children and do you like to like go to work and have the clients and talk to, I don't know, I, everything's clients with me, not everything, but I am a very client-based business. And, you know, I end every single um, interview that I do with the question, how will you know that you've succeeded? And what I'm hearing you say is like, you probably will never know you succeeded, but you're super happy to be in the process of regularly feeling that, feeling that out.
1: Yeah, I think it's exactly that. And it's uncomfortable to transition to like accepting where you're at, but it's, you can accept where you're at. You can acknowledge yourself and it doesn't mean that you don't want better things. So that's kind of what I'm recognizing now is, okay, I need to enjoy where I'm at now. I don't want to just aim for something better without enjoying and being grateful and happy with where I'm at now. And that's hard to do. But one of the practices I do for that is I write a monthly recap journal about my business and what are my top wins from this month. And it really reinforces, okay, I'm doing the right things. I'm doing things. I'm happy with these things. And I think that's so much of happiness is just recognizing that you're happy in a moment instead of just ignoring it. And it breeds happiness. It gets you feeling more excited. I feel better about what I'm doing when I reflect on it for a moment each month to say, this was really cool. And that fuels a lot of other things. And there's some people that just are going for that goal and and striving and achieving. And then they forget to appreciate all that they've accomplished already. So that's really where I feel like I'm at right now in business is how do I enjoy each little thing? How do I actually celebrate the call, the first initial call with a new potential client? It doesn't matter if it works out because I'm doing the right things that it should work out. And if it doesn't work out, that's okay. I can let go of that. So that's really, I think, how I'm starting to define success is, am I happy each day? Like, how do you get to this really granular level of was recording a podcast interview, a highlight of my day? Yes, I'm going to recognize that and not just move on to the next thing. I'm going to take a moment to write that down in a journal that I have that says, like, what are some wins from this week? Because if I don't celebrate that, then what what am I doing? I'm just going through these motions and I'm not celebrating like in leveraging whatever is going well. How do you celebrate?
0: Like other than writing things down and acknowledging what you've done, how do you celebrate?
1: Yeah, I think the biggest way is just taking time off. And and for me, so the I am in Enneagram three, so the achiever, which Uh means like just recognizing those achievements can be really helpful for me and thinking through and saying, like, okay, I did 12 things this week, or I did 12 things this month, however you break it down. And seeing that feels good. And then words of affirmation are my love language. So a lot of times sharing that with close friends or family members and just getting a response of that's really cool, or I knew you would do that thing or whatever else can be really energizing. So recognizing that, and I think that's part of the reason that I have this internal process of like documenting now each day with like daily journaling. And then that goes to a weekly journal, which goes to a monthly journal that I actually share. And that's kind of cool too, because I'm not sharing every single little thing, but I'm Mm -hmm. sharing the highlights of each month. And that kind of plugs into feeling like I'm accomplishing something, recognizing that I'm accomplishing something, and then also getting feedback from people that I appreciate and um, just seeing their positive reactions or seeing that it's impacted them as well. There's been people in the communities that I've engaged with and started building that I've said, oh, you did this thing. So it inspired me to do that thing. And that for me is kind of a celebration as well as taking time off and like recognizing those things, saying them out loud, saying, I'm going to buy this thing for myself, this new shirt or whatever else to be excited. And as kind of a reward, I mean, you Mm -hmm. don't need rewards when you're consciously happy throughout the process, which is kind of nice, but also like, I deserve this and starting to use more of that language of accepting yourself, feeling good about yourself, not being afraid to say, I did this cool thing because a lot of people are too afraid to even say that. And it kind of, As much as it positively puts us in the right direction when we're celebrating these things and going in that direction, if you forget to do that, you kind of go in the opposite direction. So I think for me, (laughs) it's been super helpful to acknowledge that and just build on that. And then the downside is sometimes people think you're too busy for new clients or you're doing so well and sometimes you don't feel like you're doing well. So that's the downside of it. So figuring out ways and an outlet to say things more honestly, because I would never post, at least I haven't yet, post anything about a bad client project. Like, I really didn't like this project, but I need an outlet for that, whether that's a friend or a family member to say, like, this is driving me crazy. I want to quit everything. That's only happened a small handful of times. But if you just bottle that up, it's going to undo all of that celebration and that positive work.
0: Yeah, I think... um what i've found is that the more vulnerable i am like yesterday i posted a 3 minute long video about anxiety and the spiral of doom <laughs> and like i got a lot of positive feedback from it and also as i shared it i was like oh my god nobody's ever going to trust me like that's scary but i've i'm finding in my experience that both celebrating the wins and acknowledging that there's a it's not always easy (laughs) is, is actually really enrolling. People want to know that like, you know, you're for you that like creative genius doesn't come down from on high and then you challenge it or channel it through to your clients. Like you actually have to find it and hone it and whatever. And also you deserve to celebrate the crap out of yourself because not many people can translate like their internal gifts
1: to gifts for the world. Yeah, definitely. It's, it's a process. And I think it's an evolution forever too, of figuring out what that looks like for you and what, what Mm -hmm. works. And it's going to be different for everyone. Chelsea, before we wrap up, um, sorry, that was my cat. He's like,
0: I want in on this. Um, where do people find you?
1: Yeah. Anyone can find me at letteringworks.com or on Instagram at letteringworks. And then as I mentioned, I have a course as well. So that's courses.letteringworks.com for any artists. I also have two mini courses on branding and passion projects. So all of that is on the course website.
0: Oh, that's cool. Um, anything else you want to say before we wrap up today?
1: Not really. I mean, this has been a great conversation. I always enjoy reflecting and kind of verbally processing all of these things. So it's exciting to pause and think about stuff and be asked really intelligent and inspiring questions to kind of work through. Yeah. How do I think about this? Um, So I think it's a good practice in general, and I appreciate you making the time and space for this conversation as well.
0: Oh, my God. I'm so glad I got to talk with you. And um I have like six people I'm going to recommend your course to as soon as we hang this up. This Is Not Advice is brought to you by me, Erin Conlin. If you are interested in learning more about my coaching practice or how we might be able to work together, please visit ErinConlin.com. This podcast would not have happened without production support from Cedar Cathedral Narrative Studio.